Welcome to episode 51 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Today's episode is on theories of Christian feminist pedagogy. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and today with me I have regular panelist Katie Grubbs and uh, former and hopefully still current listener and new regular panelist Kim Feldman. So let's uh, introduce ourselves for listeners who might be new to the show, and uh, since all of our listeners are new to Kim, for all of them. Katie, you go first. Okay, I'm Katie Norman Grubbs, and I'm going to apologize listeners right out the gate for my voice. I've been struggling with a cold for about two weeks, and my voice is finally somewhat back. So just apologies for the roughness. I know it doesn't sound like me. Um, I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. I teach part-time at HBU and live here with my husband, David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast in Houston, Texas. We have three children of varying ages, all four and under, so that's very exciting and tiring, and um, we're just really enjoying the mild winter down here, so that's me. Thanks, Katie, and thanks for uh, talking with us tonight, even though you're recovering. We appreciate you taking one for the team. Anytime. Okay, uh, and I'm going to as not usual, go second so that Kim can take uh, more time. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I live with my husband, Michael, also of the Christian Humanist Podcast in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Um, I am currently Senior Manager of Audience Development at Public Radio International, where I am on a uh, two-year fellowship for humanities PhDs who want to know what it's like to work in nonprofits, uh, and that has been uh, a super fun adventure that I'm enjoying very much. So that's me. Uh, Kim, since you're new to the team, tell us about you. All right, so my name is Kim Feldman, and I currently live in Baltimore, Maryland, where my husband is a pastor, and we also live with our two kids, who are nine and six, and I um, taught high school English for 10 years in Georgia, Alaska, and Maryland, and then when I had kids, I took some time off, but I was kind of obsessed with teaching, so I decided to adjunct at a local university, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where I ended up starting my PhD in language literacy and culture. And so now I'm a PhD candidate working on my dissertation and working with pre-service teachers to get them ready to become middle and high school teachers. Sounds like uh, you're going to fit in just fine in our neck of the woods, Kim. And uh, good luck in the dissertation process, which of course we're all familiar with. Oh yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, So let's jump right into it. We're talking, as I said, about uh, 
theories of feminist pedagogy and maybe offering our own theory of Christian feminist pedagogy a little later in the show. Um, so it's it's good to to start at the very beginning, right? Uh, what is feminist pedagogy? So we're leaning pretty heavily today on a guide from Vanderbilt University um, that we'll post in the show notes. And uh, I just want to quote from a, a couple of really concise sentences here at the beginning that it uses as a definition, and then we'll uh, riff on that for a bit. It says, feminist pedagogy is not a toolbox, a collection of strategies, a list of practices, or a specific classroom arrangement. It is an overarching philosophy, a theory of teaching and learning that integrates feminist values with related theories and research on teaching and learning. Uh, so it might be interesting that we're starting with a negative definition. Um, feminist pedagogy is not this series of things. Um, I think negative definitions are, are often a really easy place to start. Um, I also like the specific definition, specific set of negatives, because uh, they seem to value specifically feminine things across, uh, alongside more traditionally masculine things. You have value applied equally to things like values and morals and feelings. Uh, alongside more sort of logical learning things formalized theory. So let's talk a little bit more about this guide, um, which I found really helpful. Um, other than this basic definition, what did you two ladies find um, interesting or, or helpful with teaching about this guide, the way it's organized, how it defines pedagogy, um, how it suggests we practice? Kim, you go first. Well, I really like the way that the guide is set up. Um, it's set up around a model that separates um, the ideas out into habits of the head, habits of the heart, and habits of the hand. And um, it's a model from Lee Shulman, who's not a feminist. Um, he's an educational psychologist. And I wasn't familiar with that specific model, but with another concept that he um, has called pedagogical content knowledge, which is the idea that how we teach our subject should grow out of the subject itself and what it is, uh, which seems like common sense. But if you really think about it, the way that most of us were taught in traditional classrooms um, was very um kind of the banking model of teaching that the teacher as authority and expert pours knowledge into the supposedly empty mind of the students. And um, some of us might have had more progressive education where we had hands-on experiences and opportunity to apply our knowledge. But really, pedagogy oftentimes doesn't vary a lot across different disciplines. And so he really said that you need to have your pedagogy grow out of your beliefs about specifically epistemology or the habits of the head and values or the habits of the heart, which leads to habits of the hand, which are practices. So the readings that we choose, the activities that we do, the assessments that we do need to be intimately connected to what we believe about how we know about the world and um, what, we what we care about. And so um, I just thought this was a really useful way to think about it and something that I plan to incorporate in my future classes with new teachers. Yeah, I um I really liked those three um three types of habits too. I I think that they um I I hadn't heard of those three divisions before and some of them speak to how I I already taught when I was a teacher, but not all of them. So I'm I'm looking forward to to maybe using them uh in the future as well. 
Katie, what did you think about this guide? I found it very interesting. And, and I do have to say that I was immediately drawn to it because as an alum, alumna of Berry College, our, uh, I guess, motto at Berry College that Martha Berry uh, started when she started the college is head, heart, and hands. <laughs> Um, that was the whole focus. Um, and so I thought, oh, okay, well, this, this feels very familiar. But um, I liked the idea of making space alongside kind of more, like we said, more cerebral intellectual pursuits for things like um, emotion and also for then taking things outside the classroom and doing something with it. And I, and I did think that... Um, it is, it's kind of an interesting thing, too, because it relates to something which I think has been in the news a lot lately, which is the idea of work-life balance. So that I think if we, if all we ever push in our classes is the cerebral and um, thinking facts, figures, and kind of don't really acknowledge that we have emotions or differing life experiences or lives outside the classroom, then it's very unhealthy. And so I think that um, this way of approaching teaching can be really great because aside from a kind of um, feminist gender justice kind of viewpoint, I think it can also just be more healthy and um, maybe create more balanced students. One thing that I did think, uh, well, two things that I thought were kind of interesting that I noticed. One thing that we haven't talked about yet is there's a big stress on multiple identities and that, um, you know, us as, as teachers, but also students, but also the writers of the text that we're reading in class, all those different people are all bringing in into the classroom our identities and all those identities are always present and so that we need to be aware of that and of all the the way that all the different identities intersect which I think was I thought was really interesting and definitely comes into play in the classroom and uh, it's kind of a paradox but I, I think it kind of makes sense because the guy talks about how through um, through being as aware as possible of all the different identities that this actually creates community and solidarity, which feels like a paradox. You might think, well, but okay, if, if we're being aware at all times of all the ways that we're all so different, that that would, you, you might think that that would tend to discourage solidarity, not encourage it. But if, if, uh, if it's a classroom in which a teacher is encouraging a receptive environment and an environment of support, I think it can create greater solidarity and community because everyone is kind of acknowledging their different identities but accepting those identities and not being uh, discouraging to other students. I do think the one thing that was kind of very strange for me reading this guide though is that it's it sounds very much like discourses that we have in the complementarian church that say things like, well, women are like this and men are like this. You know, you guys learn this way. Women, you guys are more emotional and you're more about, you know, people stuff. And, you know, men are, we're, we're logical and we're, you know, and, and so it was kind of strange because some of the same things that I pushed back against as a complementarian and some of the more ironically, the more conservative side of that particular wing, um, the wing of complementarianism that doesn't say our different roles are for the church and marriage and that's it, but rather, no, we're totally different and that should inform every part of life. Um, I was like feeling that same kind of resistance response to this because I'm reading the guide and, and it's saying, you know, the reason that feminist pedagogy is important is because women, we're, you know, we're more about connections and we're more about experiences. And, and it was this kind of casting of 
rationalism as, as innately masculine that was a little bit strange for me just because I hadn't encountered it a ton before. So that, that was a kind of a weird, I guess, just feeling for me is that um, I didn't really know what to do with that reaction, I guess. I'm really glad that you brought that up, uh, Katie, um, because what what you're talking about, this kind of um, feminist gender essentialism, um, I'm going to call it, I don't think that's a term that other people use, adding the feminist part anyway, um, actually comes from a particular arm of um, second wave French feminism, people like Irigare and Sixu who say um, that we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't try to move away from the idea of gendered essentialism as, um, as other second wavers do and, and say that these differences are coming from a patriarchal place, but instead we should lean into um, the the things that make women different from men and own them and kind of elevate them where they've been um, where they've been sublimated or, or where they've been culturally marginalized so that that is a, a kind of feminist tradition that doesn't get talked about as much when we talk about what the second wave does I also Thanks. picked up on that Katie and um I, yeah, it did fit very comfortably into the complementarian perspective. And um, I, I guess for me, um, I don't challenge the idea that men and women are inherently different. Um, some of our differences are, are socialized. Some of them might, you know, be part of the way we were designed or biological as some of the things that I read um, when I was preparing for this podcast. Um, what I have a a, a problem with or what I think we need to challenge is the idea that those, um, the devaluing of those differences, um, which Victoria kind of referenced that um, when we see the intuitive or the emotional or the experiential as being somehow less than the rational, when really I think that we need all of them to provide balance, um, which I could appreciate about this. And it's important too that, that both are, are necessary because I, I felt too and more in the the bit more than the long Coomer piece we're going to talk later than in this, but I also was feeling a little bit of almost a sense that there was a, and I, and I get that it's a response to a delegitimizing of maybe more feminine ways of discourse in the past or more feminine ways of learning, but it was almost pushing so far in the other direction of almost privileging more experience based or more emotional responses to text or um, ways of of being in the classroom over the rational so that that it's it's almost saying no that was bad it was bad to focus on the rational when you're right I I feel like a balance it would be the would be the perfect kind of place to hit perhaps and so um, which is it's again it's it's funny because that's you know as complementarians that's what we say all the time I think that some complementarians particularly complementarian men of the John Piper age would be surprised to find out how much they have in common, perhaps with some of these second wave French feminist writers. Really, really interesting stuff here. Um, unfortunately, I, I think we need to, to move along a bit uh, and, and talk about our own experiences with feminist pedagogy, either uh, teaching with it or, or learning with it. Um, I do not remember who was supposed to go first here, so I'm just going to choose. Uh, Katie, what do you have for this section? It was interesting reading. It kind of laid out for the first time feminist pedagogy as a theory and then kind of trying to lay it over my own experience because I think that I did get – I don't remember getting much feminist pedagogy at all as an undergraduate. 
Um, and that's not to say that every class I had was kind of banking model lecture style. There, we definitely had discussion-based classes, but I think I got a little more feminist pedagogy in graduate school. We definitely had some courses at UGA where our teachers would kind of, particularly I think at the the PhD level, um, at the seminar level, that um, where our teachers would just kind of hang back and we would have a discussion. And our teacher might, um, he or she might make a comment somewhere in there, but there was never the sense that the teacher was the power or authority in the room per se. Um, it was more of a, of a collegial discussion. Um, every teacher didn't do that though, uh, even at the doctoral level, because they all have their different personal styles. I do think that um, as a teacher, I don't know how much how much I do this because I, I will say when we when we way back when we were um, Victoria and I were in sixty nine eleven class together, which was our half learning how to teach half support group class when we were first semester teachers at the University of Georgia. We had to read our, we had to read all these different theoretical texts about teaching. So we read in graduate school Paulo Freire, who talked a lot about learning with and destabilizing authority in the classroom so that the teacher and the students are co-learners, um, so that the teacher's not the ultimate authority, um, kind of with that banking model that Kim really talked about earlier. And um, even as a very young teacher, I, I kind of always had a little bit of a, of a struggle with that because it seemed to me that you could never really do that, um, the learning with, if the teacher was still going to be giving out grades. And there was some reference to that in the text. Um, he didn't he didn't leave that unacknowledged. But it seemed to me that it would be difficult to ever really learn with and do the co-learner thing um, if I was then still going to be handing a grade to my students later that I couldn't divest myself of my power entirely if I was going to be grading anyone. And that made me think, actually, that I think I'm going to have a chance to practice a lot more of this kind of feminist pedagogy stuff Ironically, um, not in school, but when I'm teaching women's Bible study at church this spring, I'm going to be teaching a class on the Apostles' Creed. And I think that it's going to be really fun because there there are no grades. There's I'm not going to be evaluating anyone. And so I think there's going to be a much bigger opportunity to take some of these ideas about being co-learners and about like striving towards the truth and, and, and learning together, I think it's going to be um, a much better environment than maybe in my freshman composition classroom where my students, I think sometimes my students might be very scared if I said to them, um, hey, let's just all learn together. Because I think that they they don't even, um, this semester especially, I'm working with kids who are pre-comp one. They're not ready for composition one yet because they still have so much background work to do in terms of grammar and mechanics. So I think that in their case, they don't have a, a strong enough grip on the material for me to be able to relinquish the reins that way and us to be able to learn together. So I think it's going to be really, really fun and really interesting to maybe try to bring some of this stuff into Bible study class in the spring. That, uh, that sounds like a, a really interesting class, breaking down the Apostles' Creed. Uh, let, us, let us know how that goes and, uh, and the kinds of things you're learning. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. Also, not to uh, put too much pressure on you, but that might be a fun uh, podcast episode later in the year. Oh yeah, that would be, that'd be super fun. Um, maybe after I finish the class, our class ends at the end of March, so maybe we could do it in April or something when I've had lots of time to, to process it. Cool, sounds, uh, sounds good. So, um, I'm going to talk about my own experiences with feminist pedagogy for 
a second and let Kim go last so that she can uh, seg into our, our next topic. So um, I, I was thinking about um, what, what example I, I wanted to use um, for this episode and I whether I wanted to go with a teaching example or a learning example. Uh, I, I have both on my notes in front of me and I'm picking on the fly because I, I really just could not decide how to portray myself. Maybe that's good. Maybe I'm, I'm, multi- I'm uh, occupying multiple identities. Um, while we're recording, let's let's go with that. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna go with with the teaching example. Um, one day uh, in a freshman comp two class, the the sort of uh, introductory literature um, semester of freshman comp, I was teaching. Joyce Carol Oates's "Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been?" Uh, have you guys ever taught that story to freshmen? No, I have not. Okay, it's a it, it's a pretty a pretty difficult um, story to teach because it's it's about a, a young girl who um, enters into a relationship with a kind of sketchy um, older guy whose motives are unclear, and um, they uh, have sex, and the consent level is at at the very least ambiguous. Um, and every time I've ever taught this story, um, you, the, the sort of, well, was she asking for it or, um, did he take advantage of her or both, um, conversation kind of comes up and it can get kind of hairy, um, morally and emotionally. And there are situations where you really kind of have to think about, um, who's in the room and, and how you're using your authority. And, uh, and an argument broke out um, while I was teaching this. Um, several men in the room said, well, obviously, you know, she dressed this way and she talked this way and she etc. etc. And some of the women in the room said, how dare you? That's ridiculous. You have no idea what it's like to be a woman when people think that you blah, blah, blah. And, and things started getting, um, getting rather heated. So I had to um, think of, of how to make their difference in experience clear to the opposing sides of the room. And what I chose to do was this. I said, okay, so obviously we're, we're dealing with a misunderstanding, a difference in experience. So why don't you talk about how you interact in the world differently? Um, women write on one side of the board, men write on the other side of the board. And write the things that you do before you go out by yourself. So um, it, almost immediately we run out of markers on the female side of the room, right? Because they're writing, uh, I hold my keys outward in my hand when I walk to my car. I don't accept drinks without tops on them. I walk in well-lit areas all the time. I use the buddy system. I, you know, all these things. And men maybe write three or four things. And so uh, this is a way to say, yes, we have different experiences because the world treats gender different ways. And then we're able to go back to the consent conversation and have it kind of in a more honest way, a way that acknowledges that difference of experience colors how we see the other person. So um, while I'm not 100% happy 
with the way I kind of decided on the fly to do that assignment in discussion. Um, I do think that it prevented um, a, a screaming match that could have been even more destructive. And I, I think that's another thing with feminist pedagogy too, is that we kind of have to be willing to let ourselves as teachers be vulnerable and make mistakes and try to get through to people as things are happening. So um, that's that's my experience. Kim, what about you? I really love that activity and that way that you problem solve that. Um, and I think you're absolutely right about the part about being a little more vulnerable and realizing that it's okay if you don't always have the answers that you can try to figure out the answers together. Um, I had similar experience. I did do my undergraduate at my master's degree at University of Georgia. And as far as models of feminist pedagogy, um, you know, I really felt like my undergrad program and my K through 12 experience was more of like where I was receiving knowledge. And then my graduate program, we were kind of allowed to critique knowledge. And then when I got to my PhD program, we're really expected to create knowledge. And that's, you know, the first time where I really had a sense of collegiality with my professor and kind of an equaling, uh, equalizing of the hierarchy in the classroom where, you know, we were creating knowledge together. And um, I had two professors in particular in my PhD program who really modeled a lot of, I think, uh, more feminist approaches to pedagogy, um, just in the readings that they chose, um, bringing in outside experts and panelists. I think that's one way of kind of decentering the teacher as authority by bringing in other voices um, and uh, allowing students also to bring their expertise to bear on the conversation. Um, I think all of that helps to kind of decenter the teacher as the sole authority in the classroom. Um, because you're you're right, Katie, that you can't really um, <laughs> negate the fact that you are the one giving the grades, but you can um, join the students in the learning process, I think, to a certain extent. Um, and so in my own classroom, I would say that I do operate more from a critical perspective than a feminist perspective in my pedagogy, um, that I really emphasize um, my students' lived experiences and their... Um, and uh, their needs um, and looking at ways that we can together kind of disrupt marginalization and oppression and the way that schooling can reproduce inequalities that we see in society rather than break the cycle, which is what we often think. And so like what are the ways that this, the way that this education system and the classroom are structured in a way that privileges certain students over other students? And so how can we kind of challenge that by making sure that all students can be successful, which is very much in line with feminist pedagogy. And um, more recently, since um, doing more reading around um, feminism, I have had more of that lens to attend to, you know, what are the ways that as a higher educational institution, the way that it's structured might inhibit women's success in the classroom, particularly um, mothers and single mothers in my classroom because we have a lot of career changers and um, older students in my classroom. Um, and so how that's played out is more recently when my when there's been childcare is issues, um, we end up with a five-year-old in the class um, and that's totally fine. And I think it's beneficial both to that student 
um, for her to say, look, I value your education enough that, you know, I'm totally fine with your child being here, but also for, it's a model for my other students of this is how we teach. We pay attention to the needs of our students and make sure that all students have an equal access to their education. Um, so that's kind of how I've seen kind of a shift from just a critical perspective to my teaching to a more feminist perspective. Shall I move on to Bell Hooks? Let's do it. So Hooks is a feminist scholar and social activist whose work uh, focuses on issues of race, gender, and intersectionality and trying to kind of dismantle um, just systems of oppression and marginalization. And um, in the particular book that we were reading, which is Teaching to Transgress, um, Education as the Practice of Freedom, she draws on her own experiences as a student and as a scholar in predominantly white um, institutions and as a woman and kind of examines how classrooms that, you know, we like to think of education as the key to equality and freedom, but she had a lot of experiences where the classroom was very confining or constraining to her and to her thinking and silencing for her. And so she um, kind of, I would say that these are almost a series of essays on her experiences of analyzing um, that struggle that she had in the classroom, both as a student and as a teacher, and um, how she's kind of shifted her approach to teaching to address that. And um, we decided to focus on two chapters for the purpose of the podcast. And the first was chapter six on essentialism and experience. And in that chapter, uh, she raises a lot of questions about um, just, I guess, the potential problems that you can run into when you um, allow experience to be a major part of your classroom. And, you know, part of feminist pedagogy is valuing experience as a valid form of knowing about the world. And, um, you know, it's very much tied to standpoint theory. And she particularly is critiquing another feminist scholar who uh, made the assertion that making truth claims based on experience in the classroom can shut down discussion. And so she challenges that idea and says that if the environment of the classroom is a healthy environment where people are able to engage in healthy critical discussion of their experience and to learn from one another, then it doesn't necessarily have to shut down discussion, that it can be really revitalizing for the classroom and um, help students to learn from one another. Um, and the other big question that she brings up is, can we teach what we have not experienced? To what extent can a man teach about the woman's experience? To what extent can I, as a white woman, teach about the experiences of um, people of other races and other cultures? But she, overall, she's just emphasizing um, just that the importance of critically and collaboratively examining the different stories and perspectives of the students in the classroom. Um, and it kind of goes back to something that Katie was talking about, that our students come to our classrooms with different identities. And if we don't acknowledge those different identities and allow their experiences to be brought into conversation, then, um, you know, to what extent can we really teach them? Can we really move them from one place to another if we're not acknowledging where they're coming from? Um, 
And in chapter eight, she looks, it's called Feminist Thinking in the Classroom Right Now. She looks at the challenges of teaching in very diverse classrooms. When she first started teaching women's studies, it was often um, predominantly white female students in her classes. And now she's got much more diverse classes. And so her students are coming to her with, from different racial backgrounds, class backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, um, different levels of critical consciousness. So some of them, you know, whereas previously people who were choosing to take women's studies might already be on board with the theories and ideas of women's studies. Um, her students now are not necessarily there yet. Um, and I think that that's an experience that many of us who teach now, um, our classrooms tend to be very diverse. Well, I guess I can't speak for every university. My university is very diverse. Um, so, so what does that mean for, you know, we can't make assumptions about where they're coming from. How do we help them all get to where they need to be in a safe environment? She particularly um, talks about how um, women's studies classrooms can um, be she, I guess in her experience, elite spaces um, where white feminist scholars um, kind of shut down the experiences um, and I guess the lack of knowledge of um, black women in the classroom. And, you know, she didn't explicitly bring up this question, but it kind of brought this question up for me. Um, you know, to what extent should women's studies classrooms or should any classrooms be safe spaces? Um, you know, should our classrooms be places where everyone feels safe and comfortable or should they be places where we kind of push each other and get out of our comfort zone? Um, I've heard one person talk about classrooms as brave spaces instead of safe spaces. And so, um, you know, that's something that I've been wrestling with, um, particularly lately in my classroom, if we're having conversations around the current political climate, um, you know, many of my students have one particular idea, but I know that some of them aren't on board with that. And so how do I make sure that they're not feeling um, shut down in the classroom? And so how do you create those spaces? Um, so I want to open this up for you guys to talk about, you know, anything that stood out to you, um, what uh, your favorite passages, um, what it made you think about, and do you have experiences with experience being something that opens up conversations or shuts down conversations and how do you deal with that issue of safe space versus brave space? Katie, do you have anything to say here or would you like me to talk first? I'll go because I think I might have a little bit less to say on this so I'll let you you round it out at the end. Um, I just, I felt like it was, I think the part that I, I felt like was the best or my favorite bit on experience is just that she the way that she explains, like you mentioned before, she talks about how some people think it shuts down. Um, it shuts down discussion. And I could see where that could happen if you have, you know, if you're discussing something theoretically or hypothetically in the classroom and a person offers up a very personal experience, then some other students might think, okay, what do I say to that? Because you don't want to feel like you want to then try to debate that other person's experience. But I think that she's right when she says, my favorite quote was when she said, um, if experience is already invoked in the classroom as a way of knowing that coexists in a non-hierarchical way with other ways of knowing, then it lessens the possibility that it can be used to silence. Basically, so that if, you, if you're lifting up experience not as a privileging over other types of knowledge, not as a privileging over kind of book knowledge or something like that, but it just as a, as a, as a, in a way of equality, that experience is valid and it's not, um, it's not like the only way you can know about anything is to read it in a book. So I thought that that was important. And I think that 
um, as far as how has experience worked into the classroom, one thing I've noticed a lot at um, HBU is we have our, my, my classroom is not very diverse in terms of age or stage of life, like you were talking about, but um, we have a super ethnically and culturally diverse student body at HBU. I think we're something like um, like 30 or 35% Hispanic, like 20% white, 20% black, and then the rest is just people from all over the world because Houston is just so hugely diverse. And it's been really interesting to see in my classes um, – this semester, not as much in discussion because my students are a little more quiet this semester, but in the ways that they write, the things that they, the experiences that they have felt comfortable to share. Um, I have one guy in particular who um, shared an experience in one of his papers about how his he decided to change his major and not be uh, pre-pharmacy anymore because he realized that he had only picked that major because he wanted because it made a lot of money and because it would please his parents but um, he thought I don't love this this is not what I want to spend my whole life doing and um, his mom found his major change form in his room he hadn't told his parents yet and it precipitated a huge family fight that in the end ended with him moving out um, and now like he lives with an uncle who lives in the same city. I mean, just a very personal story, um, that he felt like he could share in his paper. And I, when I read it, I kind of thought, okay, you know, even if these guys aren't, if they're not speaking out loud, if they're not wanting to talk about their identities or talk about, cause I think in his case too, some of that is cultural. I think that he, cause he, he talked a lot in his paper about how his parents were so disappointed that he was making a different career choice because they wanted him to have and achieve all the things that he, that they did not have. And so I think some of it is cultural and some of it is also class. And so all these different parts of his, not just his identity, but then his parents' identities and their sense of self and the way it's tied up in him. And when I read the paper, I thought, well, even if, even if this is not something that he's ever going to say in class, at least we've created an environment, or at least I've, I've been able to create an environment in class where he feels like he can share those bits of identity and that like messiness, I guess, um, of his, his real life in, in paper. And um, though actually, I, now thinking back, I don't know that he had the full draft of his paper at peer review time, and that might have been intentional. I wonder if maybe he didn't want to share that with whoever his peer review partner ended up being. But I've had a several several times that that's happened. Things in my class where students have shared really painful stories and um, in their essays, things that um, were very personal. And I think that giving them writing assignments too, that's another way we can do it too, I think. Another way that we can show that we're not devaluing experience, life experience, is to give writing assignments that give them a chance to share their, their personal experiences and not in a way that is um, in any way competitive because peer review aside, I'm the only one who's ever going to see that person's paper. So they're not having to um, try to compete or have a more interesting story than their classmates. They just can tell about their lives and um, use that as a way to, to share and then also to, but also to help them to improve their writing. So, you know, it's kind of, I've really been thinking a lot about identity and, and culture and all those things this semester in particular, because my students, my student, our student body here is so much more diverse than I've ever encountered in the past. Thanks for, for sharing that, Katie. And uh, I, I think you're right. I think that essays are, are another way that we can, we can give our students space to, um, to, to share their experiences and, and, 
and for us to to um, assign value to those experiences. So I'm I'm really glad you shared that story with us. Um, I I also wanted to share a a short um, quotation from chapter six and also um, a, a teaching experience that it that it made me think of. So um, Kim mentioned that in this chapter, Hooks is um, sort of pushing back against another feminist uh, theorist whose last name is is Fuss, Uh, so I'm going to start by referring to that person. Hooks says, Fuss makes the point that, quote, the artificial boundary between insider and outsider necessarily contains rather than disseminates knowledge, end quote. While I share this perception, Hooks is talking now, I am disturbed that she never acknowledges that racism, sexism, and class elitism shape the structure of classrooms, creating a lived reality of insider versus outsider that is predetermined often in place before any class discussion begins. There's rarely any need for marginalized groups to bring this binary opposition into the classroom because it's usually already operating. So that quotation really struck me um, because I, I think sometimes, no matter how hard we try to dismantle um, social structures inside the classroom, they're kind of always already there. They're, they're so um, in our students' bones that it can be tough, even if we try to use feminist strategies. So that made me think of um, a section of intro sociology that I taught um, I think two years ago um, would have been my my last semester teaching intro before I switched jobs and um, every semester I taught that class I did an activity called a privilege walk um, which some of you may have heard of Uh, the students stand uh, in a straight line on a piece of masking tape that stretches uh, the width of the room and you read a series of statements uh, after which they are supposed to step forward or backward depending on um, the the level of intersectional privilege denoted by the statement. Things like step forward if you grew up in a house with over 50 books in it, uh, step backward if you routinely had to use public transportation, um, step forward if you uh, lived in a house with Uh, outside help or servants, things like that. So these statements are supposed to denote um, privilege of race, class, gender, orientation, etc. So I did this assignment one day and um, the students of course end up in all different places um, in the room and before I asked them to go back to their seats I asked them to kind of look around at, at all their classmates and where everyone is Um, Then they debrief together, have small group discussion, and come back into a large group. The first question I ask the large group um, is always, what did you learn? So this class, I say, what did you learn? Several students say things. The person in the front says, you know, uh, I feel really guilty. I knew I had a lot, but I didn't realize, etc. A couple other students say similar things. Um, and then about five or six people in, um, one of the only black women in the class raises her hand and says, um, can I be honest? And I said, you know, please, I, I think I even use the phrase safe space. I want, I want this classroom to be a safe space. And she said, honestly, I didn't learn a expletive thing. And I said, okay, can, can you please tell us more about that? Elaborate. 
and she said, um, you know, I, I don't need this exercise to tell me what the outside world thinks of me. I know, you know, because I'm a black woman, and I'm pretty sure she said, I live in this body every day, um, I know what not having privilege looks like. And that really changed the tenor of the discussion. Um, I, I thanked her for sharing personally afterwards, but that really brought home to me, like, no matter how touchy-feely I am, I am still in an incredibly privileged position as a white woman and as a teacher. Uh, so I, uh, that passage in the hooks about sort of the outside world always coming into the classroom uh, really made me think of that experience. Wow. Um... I have never had the courage to do a privilege walk with my students, uh, part of it, and I'm fascinated by it, and I've sometimes recommend that they look at the, I think there's like a BuzzFeed video on it, but um, yeah, that, I think that's one of my fears, <laughs> um, and um, I, for me, uh, the quote that I kind of was drawn to, it was actually from Henry Giraud, um, but he and she talks about it a little bit, but she says that we can critically engage the experience, or I'm sorry, going back, it says students have memories, families, religions, feelings, languages, and cultures that give them a distinctive voice. We can critically engage that experience and we can move beyond it, but we can't deny it. Um, and for me, I teach these future teachers and for them, there is the danger of them essentializing based on their experience of them saying, well, this worked for me as a student, so it must be the best way, or this didn't work for me as a student so that I'm not going to do that in my classroom. But the types of students who become teachers tend to be those who um, the structure of classrooms in school worked very well for them, um, that their home discourses align very closely with school discourse. And so they, um, you know, found schooling to be particularly um, easy a lot of times. So I need to problematize those experiences and I need to get them outside of themselves. Um, so we do a lot of activities with them, um, reflecting on their experience, sharing their stories with one another, um, recognizing all along that as they learn from one another, that even, even collectively, they are privileged because there are many people who haven't made it to this point who um, whose voices aren't being heard. And so we have to bring their stories into dialogue with the readings for the course and into dialogue with um, their own students' voices as I have them do interviews with their students. Um, so trying to acknowledge their experiences but also help them to move beyond them and to critically reflect on those experiences. Thanks, Kim. That's a that's a great point. And we're, uh, I think, running a, a bit long. So if we could um, quickly get to the, the next uh, article. Katie, tell us about the long summer piece. So this piece was really interesting in that um, it's written by Lena, Lima Tula-Kalankumar. And in the CTC Bulletin, which CTC Bulletin is um, publication of the Christian Conference of Asia. So she's writing... Um, specifically, more specifically about uh, theological education in, um, in Asia. The title of the piece is Feminist Theological Pedagogy for Ministerial Formation. And so the whole article is about um, using feminist pedagogy as a way of altering and dismantling 
more traditional Western style theological education. And so I'm going to just give her a really quick pass through of some of the ideas that, um, that she talks about, which I should back up and say she's, um, she's a lecturer at Eastern Theological College in Jorhat, Assam, which is in India. And um, she kind of begins just by talking about how women's issues have kind of been kept at the periphery of theological education. And she talks a lot about a kind of male-oriented um, theological education system. And um, she specifically uses the phrase androcentric theology, which the first time I read it, I thought, well, what does that mean? Um, and but by that, then she goes on to explain later that it's um, by androcentric the theology. She means ways of, of doing theology or learning theology that kind of exclude women's experiences. And that includes things like um, emphasizing patriarchal culture structures, um, minimizing stories of women in scripture and things like that. And she points out at the beginning, which I think that she's right, that um, to really use feminist pedagogy to to kind of create positive change in this area, she feels like that you would really need to reshape the whole of theological education as it currently stands, um, at least in the Western world. And she's picking up on some of the same themes that we talked about before in terms of men's and women's different ways of knowing um, kind of coming out of those particular second wave theories that you were talking about, Victoria, because when she talks about um, theological education being male biased, she talks several times about it prizing um, ideas that are, quote, highly philosophical and abstract. Um, and she uses the, the, uh, the language of abstract later, too. And um, that's always interesting. That's It's hard for me because I mean, again, because I'm because I, I guess maybe I'm more of a combative personality, I tend to read that and say, what? So you think that uh, as women, we can't handle the abstract, you know, that I kind of have that reaction. But but I think that um, but it's 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 like what Hooks is talking about. She's not I don't, I don't think she's trying to say that we should um, completely get rid of abstract thinking or rationality, but rather that those have been things that have been prized above all else. And so that um, and she also says a lot about real life that um, the modes of theological education don't have much to say to the real lives of both women and marginalized peoples. She talks about a lot too. So I think she seems to, to really view traditional theological education in kind of seminary, a se seminary context as very much only cerebral, only abstract, divorced from everyday life. And that she says this creates um, big problems for women and so that is not relevant. And some of the things that she talks about, specific things, are even down to the divisions of departments. So that traditionally, um, at least in Western seminaries, you have these divisions like biblical studies, um, theology and ethics, history of Christianity, religions, Christian ministry, that these types of divisions create problems for women because they're, um, again, more abstract, more philosophical, more theoretical, not as much emphasizing the lived experiences of women or marginalized people. And she also says that um, we need to integrate rather than add courses to provide more context. And that actually kind of picks up on something that we read in the, the guide to feminist pedagogy, which was the idea that rather than kind of being a tourist of other of others in, you know what, rather than just adding a few um, people who haven't been historically well represented in the canon to regular classes that rather um, we should reach for solidarity 
rather than just kind of being a tourist of people who are unlike ourselves. Um, and she says, you know, that it's not enough to just add a few courses that are specifically um, about women's experiences or women's issues because these are usually electives anyway, she says. They're not required. So usually it just ends up being a few women who are taking them. And so she seems to to be pushing that, that these are things that should be required for everyone, men and women. They should be central to the curriculum and not just um, random electives. So that's why she, she likes the word integrate rather than add. Um, I really liked that part a lot. Um, it made me think of one of my favorite uh, grad school instructors um, who's also at the University of Georgia. Shout out to Michelle Balif, who I know does not listen to this show at all. Um, but she used to refer to the um, the add and stir curriculum, like uh, add women and stir, and nobody nobody will notice that they're missing. So uh, yeah, let's let's integrate and not add and stir. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I know. I thought it was it was a good distinction, a really an important distinction. Um, she also talks a lot about, um, and this also, again, goes with the kind of head, heart, hands thing. She says that, quote, the present theological education emphasizes more um, cognitive or intellectual development rather than developing the whole person, which the first time I read it, I thought, okay, but, you know, how is is kind of theology not a mainly cognitive discipline? But I think where she's going with that is, is simply um, – that maybe um, stressing that it shouldn't be book knowledge alone and so that there should be an understanding that particularly I would say in the area of faith and of our lived experience as Christians that experience does matter. It's it's not a situation where you can stuff young people full of only book knowledge for three or four years of seminary and then launch them out into the world as ministers and that they're immediately going to be successful at shepherding just because they have all this book knowledge. I think that's kind of what she's getting at. And, and so in that case, I think her kind of vision of a, a feminist pedagogy-influenced kind of seminary situation might be um, in some ways better too, but you know, by, by emphasizing experience alongside the book learning, not, not as a replacement or anything like that. Um, one thing I did think was interesting is that she even go, and I don't, I don't know that I necessarily agree with this, but she goes as far as saying that, that an emphasis on facts, on passing exams, on earning degrees, that all that's kind of bad, that it's, it's constricting and it's masculine and it's not, um, it's not, you know, uh, friendly to women and that what is better are things like discussion and relationships and interaction and mutuality and um, almost as if those are opposites in a binary, Um, which, but I think that, you know, we've, we've maybe seen if we've had teachers who taught us in more of a feminist pedagogical direction that, that those things don't have to be mutually exclusive and that, you know, students can be, eagerly pursuing a degree and wanting to pass their exams and wanting those kind of credentials without, I don't think that has to, you know, preclude things like mutuality, discussion, relationships, you know, and that maybe by integrating more things in the second column, um, more of those maybe feminine ways of knowing that it would give the, the degree, the credential, all the more value in the end, perhaps. Um, she almost seemed to see, seem to see those as opposites. Um, and uh, she also kind of pushes too. She talks a lot about um, banking model versus more co-learning. She says that the current model of theological education is limiting the learners to a passive role in meaning making, 
and then it's important to for teachers to recognize that students can also make meaning and make knowledge, which is very much a traditional tenet of uh, feminist pedagogy. As far as uh, other ways um, that it, oh, and, and just to, to back up, when she finally gets to the end and she's talking more about what she might replace um, with the current model, she definitely feels like that it should be um, deconstructing, uh, there should be a focus on women and marginalized peoples because there hasn't been. There should be a deconstruction of previous kind of um, structures of power, especially in the classroom. And to she's, she cites a specific task of a feminist theological pedagogy as to, quote, overcome the Western rationalist perspective. So she, she does, especially towards the end, seem to be casting or advocating less of a balance between maybe rationality and emotion and experience and more of a privileging of emotion and experience. But I think part of that is coming out of um, maybe her lived experience. I, I told David when I was reading this that it, it was very difficult for me to escape the fact that she's writing this particular piece as a woman professor in India and that's a totally different kind of scenario or situation. And she made some specific references to specific issues of um, Asian Christian theology, which I'm not going to go into too much because I, I don't have a lot of knowledge in that area. And that's not quite as germane to our, our task for today. But I, I, it was hard for me to and, – and, and I mean I think this is very feministly pedagogical. I don't know how to make that a um, an adjective there. But um, to, it was hard for me to escape her identity and her position in that way, because I think that her experience in attempting to advocate for feminist pedagogy in India is totally different than our experience here in the States. And so it, that was something that I always had in the back of my mind. But um, she does say in the end that a, a new model for theological education should be contextual, right? Not just book learning, but remembering life context. It should be people-centered and it should be issues-based so that um, rather than ignoring issues of life, issues like poverty, or um, sexism, things like that, that those should be tackled head on in the classroom. And uh, I think the similar similarities between this and, and the other the other texts that we read are, are numerous to me. The only real differences that I'm seeing is one maybe a motivation. And then in this case, I think she would definitely say that we should do these things. We should take this more feminist perspective in theological education because we're all the same in Christ, right? So that there's that faith motivation that you wouldn't see in secular feminist pedagogy. Um, but other than that, I think she's definitely lining up with a lot of the things that we've, that we read, that we read in hooks and that we read in the guide. I think my one real question about all of this is that I, I am, I am going to confess to being a little bit troubled by the whole notion of rationality and, and quote, official knowledge as kind of the province of men. Um, and, and part of that is just maybe me wearing my Dorothy Sayers hat too much and sitting over here and going, but we're just, but we're human, you know? And we are, but also I see what she's saying and that there are, um, you know, those are, are things that have, those, those are, I guess, ideas or ideals that have been prized in the past in the academy, which until very recently was completely dominated by men. So I see why those things are inextricable um, in, for some and, and why that could be an issue. Um, also, I think that it could be difficult to completely reimagine theological education in part because if you're thinking about co-learning and destabilizing power in the classroom, it'd be really difficult to have the professor be a co-learner, for example, in like a Greek or Hebrew class. 
um, something like that, one of these classes in seminary where you're not talking about issues and you're not talking about even really about theology, but it's it's more of a technical, I guess, situation. So that was just kind of something I was thinking about. But I'd like to hear what you guys thought about this piece. Uh, Victoria? Um, I, I'm going to, since we're, we're at an hour here, I'm going to see if we can, can put a couple of, of points together. Um, Katie, you were already speaking to, um, how the long coomer and the hooks speak back to each other. Um, so I wanted to, to maybe see if we could do more of that. Um, maybe think about, um, a, a Christian feminist pedagogy and instead of just a feminist pedagogy, um, Kim, you, you tell us first, what do you think that could look like or should look like, maybe? Um, I guess, you know, I am coming from kind of a complementarian perspective in the sense that, you know, if if we believe that men and women um, are created in the image of God and that we are designed, and um, from a complementarian perspective, we're designed differently, um, but of equal value. And so, um, for me, I feel like this, uh, that a Christian feminist pedagogy would acknowledge that and would, um, recognize that it's not where one way of knowing and being in the world is better than the other, but that they're both important. And it's not just important for women. So we don't shift the way we approach Bible study and, uh, teaching and learning in a Christian environment just so that the women feel more comfortable, but that because it's beneficial for the men as well, um, that we need both. We need the both and. And I'm also, Katie, not comfortable with that binary. Um, so we do need to be able to um, bring our experience to bear in the conversation and to, to look at how we understand God through experience. Um, but then we also need to look at that um, through a critical lens and through a rational lens. And um, ultimately with Christianity, there is the authority of the Bible and there is the centrality of Christ. And so, um, you know, we can't make idols of our experience. And so um, I think that recognizing that our experiences are important um, and that we can learn from them but that we need to uh, bring those experiences into dialogue with scripture and into um, dialogue with Christian community, I think is also going to have to be a piece of that kind of Christian feminist pedagogical perspective. Yeah, um, I I think you're right. I think um, what the two of you are saying about um, not just flipping the binary is is especially important um, because I I think that a a lot of people, um, and I'll I'll just go ahead and say a a lot of Christians, um, have um, specific misconceptions of feminism that are kind of flipping the binary involved, that it's it's about... um, elevating women over men and about kind of um, thinking that men don't have anything to offer, right? Which is, is not um, what what feminism at its core is, is about at all. Um, so I, I appreciate that, that you two um, brought that up. Something that, that I was thinking about um, when reading The Long Coomer in terms of a specifically Christian feminist pedagogy is um, she uses the term um, 
democratic teaching learning. Um, teaching learning is a, a hyphenated word that she uses several times. And um, I, I thought that, that that resonated really well with some ideas from the Vanderbilt Guide um, about decentering the, the authority of the teacher. Um, but it, it also, it's, it's equalizing, made me think of the biblical passage about the body of Christ. The idea that um, bodies have hands and legs and feet and eyes and tongues um, and, and that all of these things are um, different but equally important um, much like the two of you um, alluded to the, the complementarian perspective um, while I do not identify as a complementarian um, I, I do think that, that um, kind of equalizing those differences um, where they do exist is an important thing uh, and, and treating them as equally valuable um, in the eyes of people because they are equally valuable in the eyes of God uh, is, is very important. Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to keep moving. I wish we could talk more um, about our views of Christian feminist pedagogy, but we're running low on time, so we're going to need to move to uh, the final segment of every episode of our show, the recommendations segment. Uh, Katie, what do you have to recommend recommend for us? So um, what I wanted to just kind of throw out for this week is there's been a whole big discussion recently online about the um, the kind of rise of national women's ministry, I guess, for lack of a better word. There's this big kerfuffle with Jen Hatmaker recently because she seemed to change her views on some certain issues. And so then Lifeway said, oh, we're not going to carry your books anymore. And there's been this whole discussion. And out of that, though, has, has risen this really productive discussion of women. In, and I was especially, I think, women like Joan Wilkin in the Complementarian Church basically saying to male pastors, if you don't know who that is, then you have some work to do about acquainting yourself with half of your own congregation. And so the article that I'm going to recommend today kind of grew out of that whole discussion, and it's called What I Want Pastors to Know About Women's Ministry by Sharon Hottie Miller, and it's on one of the blogs on Christianity Today's website. But um, she basically goes through and talks about ways that local church leaders can respond to the needs that women have in the body. Um, so that perhaps it um, it's not just these kind of national big movements that women feel like they can belong to. And she particularly talks about ways that um, that church leaders can affirm the gifts of women and give give them give them ways to express their gifts in the local church body that I think is really great. So that's that's my recommendation for today. Thanks, uh, Katie. I, I really loved um, that article. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, since we're linking to it, I think we should also link to uh, friend of the show and Christian Humanist Network member Chris Gears's really wonderful um, uh, response to that post where he kind of owns um, his uh, his desire as a man in the church to to learn more about those issues. So we'll we'll link to both of those. Kim, what do you have for us? So when we decided to do a show on feminist pedagogy, um, I went to one of my colleagues in my PhD program and asked her, like, what's, what would you recommend? And uh, she recommended the book Feminist Pedagogy, Looking Back to Move Forward by Crabtree, Sapp, and Lycona. 
And um, I found it to be a really great kind of primer feminist pedagogy. And it's, it's, it lays out the central tenets of um, feminist pedagogy, but then also the inherent challenges and questions like that issue of like, you can never really get away from the hierarchical structure of the classroom and um, has a series of um, papers from journals um, from, I believe, the early 2000s. on feminist pedagogy. Um, and I'm just going to throw this out there too. I'm passing on a suggestion for what somebody needs to publish. That's not me. Um, when I was really wanting to find articles on feminist Christian pedagogy and nobody's really done that, this was the only article that I could find. Um, and this article didn't really scratch the itch that I was looking for of really looking at how feminist pedagogy connects with, uh, like, Jesus's model of teaching and, um, to scripture itself. She really didn't reference scripture very much in her piece. Um, so I would love for anyone out there who has more theological knowledge than I do to, uh, take that up as, um, an opportunity for research. I know there's a book, um, about Christian feminist teaching that we covered on, like the first two or three episodes of this show years ago. Um, I was trying to think of the name of it while you were talking, and I cannot because I am trying to think of it right now. Um, but I'll, I'll look through my notes and, and see if I can um, get that to you and, and maybe throw it in the notes as well. That would be great. Uh, okay, so I will wrap us up here. My recommendation, um, in, in keeping with all of this talk we've been doing about um, centering people's experiences, I am going to recommend an experience uh, that, that I had this weekend. Um, and uh, I, had, I had coffee Saturday with two women from my church who I hadn't talked to um Uh, in a lot of depth before. One of them is in her early 50s and one of them is in her early 70s. And we talked about the development of our uh, Christianity and we talked about, they're they're both um, self-identified feminists, we talked about feminist history and and kind of the the gains that women of their generation have made um, so that women of my generation and our generation um, are now trying to solve different problems. Um, It was a really enlightening, um, wonderful discussion that I'm glad I got to have um, and I I'm going to be meeting with them. Um, I I think we decided on once a month now, uh, and I'm I'm really looking forward to deepening those relationships more. So my recommendation is uh, get yourself an intergenerational feminist friendship. Uh, I think that that will uh, benefit you and the people that you hang out with. And if you do, um, let me know what you talk about, and I will keep updating all of you on uh, my coffee hours, which I hope continue. So that'll wrap us up for today. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out show notes from this and all of our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For Kim Feldman and Katie Grubbs, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. 
Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss some of the church's views on female sexual desire. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.